0: From Franklin, Tennessee, just south of Music City, this is the Safety Exchange,
1: where we exchange ideas for businesses on common sense loss control and risk management, so you can focus on what matters most.
0: I'm Larissa Featherstone, CEO of Johnston & Associates and Aki Sure Claims Services.
1: And I'm Justin Gray, Director of Loss Control for Johnston & Associates, and this is the Safety Exchange. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back everyone to the safety exchange. We know that everyone moans when they first hear about needing to get an attorney involved. Today, we thought we'd talk to an expert about the things you can do so that when you do need to get an attorney to help improve your chances of winning. Our guest is a senior attorney with Morgan and Aikens, with over 20 years of experience handling auto and product liability in addition to workers' compensation claims. Please welcome the podcast, Dwayne Willis.
2: Hi.
0: Hey Dwayne, thanks for coming out. Sure. We really appreciate you coming and talking to us today.
2: There's an error in your first sentence. Um, not everyone moans. The attorneys usually don't moan when they have to get involved. So
0: attorneys do not moan, huh? No, no,
2: we're usually very happy to get involved. You're very of course, excited of to take our are. calls. <laughs> <laughs> of course.
0: So I get, I think that's what we're excited to talk to you about. Is I know um, you know a lot of people are scared of attorneys, are scared of lawsuits. I know we've got lots of questions about. Um, kind of what they can do to prepare, but then also what, what to expect when, when you have a, a case that's going to go, um, whether it's work comp or auto liability, any type of commercial. But before we get into all that, let's find out a little bit more about you. I know that you've spent, got kind of an interesting schooling background, uh, grew up in the Army, right? Is that that correct? Or not you in the Army, but...
2: Yeah, correct. Yeah, my dad was military. So I moved around a lot as a kid. Uh, I was born in Maine. And then after that, we moved to Germany for four years and then California for four years. And then I went back to Germany and did two years of college in Germany, which was under duress, I think. But in retrospect, it was very cool. I
0: think it's pretty interesting. Under duress. You're going to have to explain that a little bit more. Go into a country full of beer drinking sounds like a college dream.
2: <laughs> well, it wasn't. It wasn't my first choice to start with. It was. Uh, it was kind of suggested to me. Uh, I was going to go to several other schools, one on the west coast, and then my parents, who were going to Germany, said, "Why don't you come to the east coast?" Uh, and so I applied to a few schools there and got into those schools as well. And then they were like, "You know, there's a school over here in in Munich, Germany, that you can go to that uh, is associated with the University of Maryland. You could do that for two years." And I was very, very hesitant until my dad said, when you come over here, we'll buy you a BMW. At which point I was like, yeah, I'm all in. Let's do this. So I went over for two years and he bought himself a BMW. So that kind of counts, I guess. I I didn't get the BMW. I got a Peugeot. I forgot what model it is, but it's
0: still German, right? Oh, it's European. Yeah,
2: it was a European car. So I guess technically that counts. It It got one place and then broke down. That's all it could do. It could go one trip and then it would stop. Yeah. but it was uh, yeah, once I got there, it was significantly better um as a budding suds connoisseur, uh yeah, being over there between the ages of eighteen to twenty one was very very instructive not a not a bad place to be at that age, no, not at all, so I'm curious in school
1: did you when did you decide to become a lawyer, i guess
2: um uh, let's see.
1: Or when did you know that, yeah, that's what I want to do?
2: There was cowboy and fireman early on, <laughs> but then those, then those changed a little bit. Right on. I thought about chemistry because I was pretty good at chemistry and then realized that, that uh, it just, it, it didn't, chemists don't argue enough. So, and I, I seem to be good at that. So about eighth grade, I was pretty convinced that I wanted to be a lawyer and just followed that path most of the way through.
1: So but, you were, you were good at arguing?
2: Yeah, I presume. Yeah. yeah, not not nearly as good as my significant other, uh, but I'm good. So she's gonna We're hear other this. Other
0: than securing the BMW part, yes, yeah,
2: that, I, I feel miserably at that. Early she's, gonna train, she's gonna hear this and kill me. But yeah, no. <laughs> she's she should be the litigator. She's a much. She, she her arguments are rock solid. I
1: always lose too. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I think that's just your place. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I <mean>. yep. yep. <laughs> the men are supposed to lose arguments.
1: Yep. So I guess you're also involved um, with Best Buddies and Special Olympics. Kind of talk about that and and why you are involved.
2: Uh, Sure. Actually, yeah, there's a couple more. uh, uh, Down Syndrome Association of Middle Tennessee and Gigi's Playhouse. I'm also involved with those. Uh, I'm on the board for the Down Syndrome Association of Middle Tennessee. My daughter is eight, and she has Down Syndrome. So I started getting involved in that when she was born. I had been uh, on the outskirts of charity work before, but not really diving in and involved until she came along and it just really it, uh, having a, a child with special needs really changes your perspective sure on what's important and what's not important and just i wanted to get as involved as i could in those those projects they are wonderful organizations dsm dsamt works with you from from birth till whenever trying to get you what you need to start with they will help you with uh uh, when you first have the child, giving you the information you need. Uh, what can I expect? What do I need? What's going on? They'll help you in the schooling system, helping you with IEPs, which are individual education programs. Um,
0: it's a difficult road to try to navigate an IEP or any yeah. of that type of stuff. It's not education you get while you're going through school yourself.
2: No, you really don't, and they don't give it to you in law school either. I can tell you that because, uh, yeah, that was a that was a brand new experience in trying trying to deal with those. So, uh, but they do that. They'll help try and get employment later on down the road. Uh, Gigi's is a nonprofit organization that like gives them a safe place to go, uh, helps them, does free tutoring, uh, gives them open gym, open play, also teaches them life skills, stuff like that.
0: That's incredible. Where's Gigi's at?
2: Uh, Gigi's is here in, well, I think it qualifies as Brentwood. Uh, My wife will also tell you this. I can get you anywhere, but I can't direct you anywhere. I I am (laughs) just like that. So, I don't know how to. It's um, it's over by the Sonic off of Moore's. Before you turn off of Moore's Lane, right there by the Publix. That's
0: it'd be what ish.
2: Yeah. Yep. So it's got a little place over there. I know. I think you. Her her
1: name is Emma Grace. If, yes. Emma Grace. shout out to Emma Grace. Then that's yeah. Cool.
2: And Brody. and Brody. Uh, yeah. yeah. I don't want to leave anybody out. No, no, he's, no, you my, can't he's leave Brody. Yeah, out. we don't want to leave Brody comes out. comes up
0: here to the office sometimes, and I always give uh, tell Dwayne he is a. Bidding image of Dwayne very articulate little boy and uh is he gonna be an attorney one day too yeah <laughs>
2: he seems like he could he could but he's 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 so much smarter than that I'm, I'm hoping he's gonna fun- <laughs> channel that somewhere else maybe uh maybe to the technological industries
0: that's right he's really yeah. into technology and games and stuff like that right yeah. computers
2: he is super smart and just uh, he's he's the opposite of his sister. She's like a fireball go all the time, and it's one way or the highway with her, and he's as laid back as it gets, which is very strange because both his mother and I are relatively type A, so how he comes out is basically type C. I have no idea, but you can't get under that kid's skin. It's amazing.
0: Yeah, he's this cool, calm, collective kid walking around, and I don't know. He's not intimidated by a whole group of people around here talking to him. He just walks right on in. Yeah. He's hilarious.
2: He's going to be a politician. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, I've got a group of people that I play trivia with and he likes to, when he's not in school, he'll go with us. He can't go when he's in school because it brushes right up against bedtime. So, but when he's not, he goes and without, without fail, he will answer one question that nobody else at the table
0: knows. It's because it's his generation question. You have to have diverse generations with the trivia <laughs> questions. Sometimes so, there
2: was one that was just like, what is the, the period at the end of, uh, I forget. Cause I didn't know. It's, it has a specific name. I think it's the dot that's over on the letter A or something like that, and he knew what that was. So wow. I, have no idea I don't even called. know what
0: you're talking about. Yeah. So. Yeah. I'm not sure I know <laughs> what I'm talking about.
2: I was there.
1: What are you, uh, when you're not in the courtroom or, or not with the family, or maybe with the
2: family, but what are you into otherwise? Um, Hobbies, so to speak. Okay. Well, since uh, I can tell you that right now, uh, this social distancing thing is my jam because I'm an introvert. So, <laughs> So having to be at home and not having a reason to go anywhere it works out perfectly for me. Yeah. I, that's, that's where I like to be. I, I like to just sit around and watch movies, uh, play games with the family. If I can, uh, I will get out and play the occasional round of golf, but it's, it's few and far between nowadays. So.
1: And, Same for me, yeah.
2: although I'm, I'm not near as good as I want to be at it, but yeah. I think I, that's not uncommon with golf. And I do like to go for runs, but as you noted, from the 20 years of experience, as those years of experience have gone on, the speed of the runs has gone down. And so that just kind of gets depressing after a while. I'm like, I'm not, I was never this slow before, but I am now.
0: Well, that's why you should start running. I just started running during all of this. And so I'm getting faster, but it's still incredibly slow by all other standards. (laughs) (laughs) I
2: keep having these thoughts that like, I know what my best times for like, um, for a half marathon and for a 5K are, and I know when I set those. And I keep having these recurring dreams that I can beat those. And then I wake up and come back to reality and realize it's, that's just never going to happen.
0: You're like, wait a second. My knees are not as <laughs> young as they used to be. Exactly. My, yeah.
2: uh, my brother's an
1: ultra runner. Run the, oh, the, the 50, Wow. Yeah, I don't know how he, he'll, he'll start. Really? Yeah. He'll start running at like six thirty in the morning and not be done until like six in the evening. And, and that's his passion. So I, just,
0: I don't even understand that.
1: And, it's, and, and it's on trails too. It's trail running. So you're wow. up, you know, your mountains and, and all that, but is he married? He is kids? somehow. Yep. Yeah, he's got a, uh, she's almost two now. So, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know how he has the time to do it. Yeah.
2: That's it's an impressive free pass. So, yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: It's not one that many people get. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> yep. So, it sounds like you always wanted to be an attorney, but I mean, what brought you into corporate defense work? Is that where you thought, or insurance defense? Is that where you thought you'd end up, or? Uh,
2: no, that is that that is not where I thought I'd end up. I I honestly didn't have a plan when I got into law school because I was naive enough not to realize that there were certain nuances to the law. I just thought, you know, get into law, practice law, and then as it turns out, there are a, once you get to law school, there's a wide variety. I'm sure most people know that before they get to law school. I just I'm a late bloomer, I guess. Uh, it wasn't until after I got out, um, I interviewed with several different places. Some of them. Didn't fit. It just—I could tell that they were more transactional, and that really didn't suit me as much. And so I was looking for something where I could do a little bit of everything and definitely get in front, getting get in a courtroom. And uh, first firm I practiced with—I just really liked the guys that I was working with there. They, when I when I interviewed when I interviewed with them, everything clicked, and it was it was a no-brainer to start with those guys.
1: So you enjoy the actual litigation piece of it, getting in the courtroom. Yeah, I do. All that. Yeah, I do. I know some attorneys I talk to never enjoy that and try to avoid that at all
2: costs. But it's, yeah, it's weird. It's the vast majority of attorneys I talk to would prefer to avoid a courtroom at all costs yeah. if they could. But no, I'd, I'd rather.
0: I think there's two camps, the ones that really like it and the ones that don't. Yeah. I don't know. At least that's what I've seen. I agree. Cool. So uh, speaking of that, um, when was, how long after you got out of law school was your first jury trial?
2: Uh, I think it was within the first year. Really? Yeah. Pretty quick. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a lovely story if you'd like to hear it. How yeah. nervous were you? <laughs> I can <only> imagine? <laughs> no, I can't. I mean,
0: can you imagine one year? Yeah. Of, I mean, how old are you when you get out of law? school? what, uh, 25, 25, 26? Yeah. 25.
2: So, I was 26 years old. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great story of just exactly that, being that nervous. Um, it's making me nervous to tell it, as a matter of fact. It's just, it's weird. So. I, yeah, had a client who the way they did business was they would put a value on a case and they would do that within probably the first two or three months of the case being in existence. So whether medical treatment was done, whether it wasn't done, they got to a point where they're like, we're comfortable and here's the value. And it would
0: just Ten thousand, three thousand, whatever it may be. Yeah,
2: and their numbers were always very specific. It wouldn't be ten or three. It would be like three thousand five hundred eighteen dollars and thirty four cents. It's just <laughs> why they came up with those numbers or how they did it. I don't know. They may have had a secret computer in the back that they used. I, I don't First know. But all. but they would come up with those numbers and they would give it to you and say, if it can be settled for this, settle it. If they want more, take it to trial. And so it didn't matter if you had that thirty five eighteen, uh, and they wanted thirty six, it was going to trial that's just how they valued it. So this one, and I'll try to give you a little bit of background on it. um, But again, I'm horrible with direction. So bear with me. My client was uh, driving a truck, a pickup truck, pulling a trailer behind him that had some wood on it. He was headed, it was a four-way intersection. He was headed in the southerly direction, north to south. Um, On the east side of the intersection was the plaintiff who was parked waiting because it for his direction, it was blinking yellow. For the other direction, it was bl- blinking red. So she stopped. As my guy is coming down the hill, going through the intersection, a car coming the opposite direction of him, a lovely elderly couple in a powder blue Cadillac, decided to turn left on the yellow light and cut in front of him. So he hits them in the side. They slide across and nestle up against the car that's just sitting there. And so she sues both parties. My guys say, We're not at fault for this we didn't do anything wrong they value it at zero and they won't come up at all so we go to mediation didn't work out because i offered zero and they didn't want to take it and shocking yeah and then and then we go to trial uh as it was my first jury trial i prepped for it forever i had a box and a half of documentation and everything i was ready to go i'd been up the whole night getting everything ready had my jacket laid out had everything set and i put everything in the car i drive for two hours to where the trial is I get my box out of the car and then go to get my jacket and it's not in the car. And so I've got a, I've got a shirt on and I've got a tie on, but no jacket and the courtroom rules are jacket and tie required for all attorneys at all times. And when you're, when you're 20 years out, you know that you can probably go to the judge and be like, your honor, I forgot my jacket. Can we just, you know, go for it. You go in chambers or whatever and talk to him and, He'd probably give you a tongue lashing, but you'd work it out. When you're one year out, you're freaking out. I'm looking for a place. Uh, it's a very tiny town that I was in. Uh, it had this, I believe that was its only light. So that's why it was always blinking because really wasn't that much traffic. Right. <laughs> I'm looking for a Penney's, uh any kind of store that can sell me a jacket, can't find anything. So I, um, I've got a buddy who I went to law school with who actually works for the guy that I'm going up against in court. And so, so the the
0: other side. <laughs> yeah.
2: So the other <laughs> sides um, associate is uh, I know him and he works in that town obviously. So I sneak in the side door of their building and go to his office and I'm like, "Hey, do you have a jacket by any chance that you can you can loan me?" And he's like, "Yeah, I got I got one on the back of my ja- uh, of my door." So he gives me that one and I go to court with that. Now, a couple of things with that. The one is I'm 5'9" And he was six three, so nice. we're, yeah, we're starting from a, a not exactly the right size jacket. And the second was I, I had chosen an olive suit for the occasion, and his jacket was navy, so it was very That's a clear nice,
0: nice, uh, contrast <laughs> yeah. there.
2: Yeah, it was very clear that this was not my jacket, and so.
0: So you look like a little kid coming into court.
2: Yeah, and I look like In that- your
0: dad's jacket.
2: And I have a young face anyway, so I look like that anyways. But having that did not help at all. It took me from like looking like I was 15 at the time to looking like I was 10 at the time. So, yeah, it got, it got even worse. So,
0: but uh, how, did, how did the trial work out, though? Uh, that actually
2: went well. I decided just to, to, to lean into it and just go with it. So I went ahead and told the jury that I was super nervous. It was my first jury trial. I explained to him that I was so nervous that I had forgotten my jacket. And that's why I looked like I had just gotten out of clown college because I had to borrow somebody's jacket to make sure I was keeping up with what I was supposed to be doing and keeping up with the regulations. And uh, so it was a two-day jury trial. We got to the second day. I did remember my jacket that day. And uh, the plaintiff had uh, told so many different stories that I was able to give one different version of the story to each of the 12 jurors separately about how her story didn't match up. And I walked back and down and forth in front of the jury box, telling them all that. And when I got to the end, I was like, look, I've I've been pacing, but the reason I'm pacing isn't because I'm nervous. The reason I'm pacing is because I'm here to show you that if I just keep walking like this and you're over there, we're never going to come into contact unless something comes in between us to make us come into contact, which is what happened in the accident in question. And that's why my client's not at fault.
0: So you're setting up the whole roadway then?
2: Yeah. Yeah, actually. Box. Yeah. it actually worked. I leaned into it. We didn't. We didn't end up getting a defense verdict on that one, so that good worked deal. out well.
0: Good deal. So I've you won. You, sh- sorry, sorry, ahead,
2: ahead, No, so you won your first
1: case. Yes, I did. That's awesome. Yeah. I've go actually, ahead. Yeah. Sorry,
0: that was what I was going to say. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: well, you started out, out of the gate good, then.
2: Yeah, yeah, and that I don't know. It's I it might have set a bad precedent with this client because I kept doing that for them, and so they kept valuing these cases lower and lower, and I got a lot of trial experience out of it, though.
0: It's got to be fun. So, uh that's a great story of the first case. Do you have any other funny stories or of things that have happened in the courtroom?
2: As far as cases that went wrong, or...
0: No, maybe cases that went right, or maybe just funny things that have happened in the courtroom in general. Cranky judges. Cranky judges, Anything. crazy
2: juries. Uh... Do attorney fights count?
0: Yes. Most, okay. Most definitely. That's exactly what I'm talking about.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I started um, I started my legal practice in West Tennessee, and uh, it's a little more... Uh,
0: spirited? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I'd say like spirit. It's a good word. Um, it's a little more spirited down there. I think these attorneys, they deal with each other on such a regular basis that they just get each other... Un- they're under each other's skin at all times, so we we, uh, there was one situation where one attorney was arguing and the other attorney was arguing back, but the first attorney decided to take it personal, started making personal attacks about the other attorney who, who didn't appreciate that very much. And so he just, uh, trying to figure out how he phrased it. I think he was, I think he basically said, your honor, can I have a five minute recess and before the judge actually responded, he just got up, walked over and punched him in the nose. And so
0: in the middle of the courtroom.
2: Middle of the courtroom yes.
0: What did the judge do?
2: Um the judge, being familiar with both parties, had his bailiff and other attorneys bigger than myself restrain the two parties, pulled them aside. I don't think there was actually any jail time involved, um, because after they were pulled apart, the one attorney that now had a broken nose <laughs> was basically like, Yeah, I had that coming. and, and the judge <laughs> was also like, You did have that coming. And so the, the no, char- and yeah. up, no charges took no charges were brought the case the case was rescheduled for another time it it did not go to to i think it was just a motion hearing that day, but it didn't it didn't finish Wow. Mm-hmm. I, can only
0: imagine,
1: I can only imagine the things you probably have seen, I've I've seen I think yeah.
0: attorneys are competitive by nature, and so and like you said, you like to argue, so yeah. that brings out the maybe best and worst and some yeah. yeah.
2: Being in uh, being in personal injury law, you don't get as many good stories as you do with some of the other ones. Like you're going to get better stories with criminal lawyers and divorce lawyers. I've been in those docket calls where you're sitting there and they show up and they're supposed to be paying child support. And the guy walks up and he's wearing a shirt that says, I'm not as think as you drunk. I am. (laughs) And you're like, you're like, maybe that's not your Sunday best shirt that you want to wear when you're trying to argue why you shouldn't be paying your child support.
0: So you told me a story one time of uh somebody you represented showing up in their uh Sunday best and your star witness. Yeah. Can you share that story? It's yeah. a great one. Good news. It's
2: the same first jury trial. So in that same trial, uh I get to court and my guy shows up and I had told him before, prepped him, he was ready to go. I told him I was like, Where are your where are your church clothes, where are your Sunday best and 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 so you'll be sitting beside me, so the judge is going to see you the whole time. So he shows up. He's got skin tight black jeans on. uh He's got a a short sleeve. If memory serves, I think it was what you would call a button down, but they were snaps. So and, and then the pockets had snaps too. So he did outside. He had he had a he had a hat on, but I made him take the hat off. It wasn't it wasn't a Sunday best hat. It certainly wasn't something that should be worn into court. So I made him leave it in the court. More
0: like a Saturday night out best yeah. outfit
2: yeah and uh so he showed up like that also um uh, we only had one witness which was his girlfriend who was in the car with him so she was going to explain the same facts he was right he decided over the weekend that it wasn't working out so trial was on monday he broke up with her during the weekend and uh i assumed she was a favorable witness <laughs> so i didn't i didn't i didn't subpoena her to the courtroom the courthouse because you know she was his girlfriend, she was supposed to be there. They'd been together for like two years. And so I, I had to explain to him, in the future, if you find yourself in a jury trial, try not to break up with the star witness the weekend before we go to court. So. Yeah.
0: Bad timing.
2: Bad timing, for sure. Look,
0: when you can't put up with it anymore, you can't put up with it anymore. <laughs> got to draw the line in the sand somewhere.
1: <laughs> yep. I think it would be helpful if you could explain to to everybody listening, you know, who are you actually an attorney
2: for and, and, and what you do? Like, who are you representing? Sure. Uh, I do what's called insurance defense work. So I represent the insurance companies. The commercials that you see on TV paint me as the evil empire and the attorney for the guys that are hiding the money that you should be getting, that you're entitled to, and that they're hiding it. And it, uh, that's not actually true, but it doesn't make for good commercials if they tell you the truth. So the truth is most of those cases settle from the start. Because most of them are valued correctly and the insurance company like, hey, this is what your case is worth. And it is actually what your case is worth. The ones that I end up getting to go to court with are usually the ones that they're like, your case is worth X. And the plaintiff is like, yeah, but I saw on TV that X should be $2 million and your X is not $2 million. I want $2 million. And that's when they come to me and I'm like, okay, your case is still worth X, but I'm just going to have to prove it to you.
1: So you, do you do deal primarily in, in auto liability trucking or, or, uh,
2: yeah, personal injury stuff. So a lot of, a lot of automobile, I do some, uh, black lung law for some case for some clients. I've done some federal, also products liability, governmental tort liability actions, workers compensation, all from the insurance side, all for the employers or the, or the insurance companies.
0: So there's a difference a little bit between um, we mainly work in the work comp side or people with auto liability, not personal lines, but more commercial lines, which is a little different because you have not only the person driving in the insurance company, but you also got the, you have the employer that's out there too, um, or the trucking company out there. It seems that recently it's coming in the news a lot. You see a lot more of those attorney ads. If you've been hit by a big truck, if you've been, have you handled and seen a change in how those claims are being handled within the courts over the last couple of years or?
2: Um, I have, and you're right, uh, because those are the ones that they salivate over. The the plaintiff's attorneys want to get those in because usually the trucking companies, fleet owners have the higher, higher dollar policies. So they know that the money is going to be there from the front end. When you have just your general automobile liability accident, for instance, in Tennessee, limits are 25. You have to have that. There are still people that don't have that, but if that's the limit, that's usually what you end up getting. And so they know that that case is only going to be worth so much. Whereas with the trucking companies, they're going to be worth significantly more. So you'll get some cases that will be uh, on the bigger side with the trucking companies.
0: So, I mean, just kind of, I know this is what you're kind of saying. So instead of a $25,000 case, the same accident and the same injuries, if they get hit by a big truck or a commercial liability policy, the likelihood that they might get more, 100,000 or maybe even a million is much higher. Is that why they want those cases?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Those are the ones that they want because those are the ones, uh, they know if the policy's there, then the money's there. They don't have to worry about anything else. And secondarily, with some of these bigger companies, uh, there's going to be more assets to the company. So there's going to be other alternatives to get there to get their money rather than trying to squeeze blood from a turnip.
0: I think, um, you know, a lot of the companies we work with, there's just a lot of questions of, they feel like they're sitting ducks out there, you know, people. And I mean, this is when I talk to company owners, they feel like people are kind of targeting them and, and what can they do to make it so that, I mean, here's the thing. You got a lot of trucks on the road. Somebody's going to get in an accident even if it's not their fault, they'll they'll be involved and there's that potential of liability. What kind of advice do you have for for people, trucking companies, that kind of help make your job easier if, if the case were to come to you?
2: Sure. Um, the first thing is that, unfortunately, you kind of are sitting ducks out there because you are that giant truck that's on the road and there are tons of them. So they're already looking at you like you're a member of the evil empire and thinking big truck means big dollars. So when you're starting from that, you have to do all you can from the front end to try and make sure that everything you do is as safe and procedurally sound as it possibly can be. Uh, That's going to start with your drivers, obviously. Uh, If you train your own drivers, then train them well. Um, Make sure they pass all the tests they're supposed to pass. And before you put them on the road, make sure that you know and you feel 100% comfortable that they are a qualified driver. Because if you put them out there and you don't think they're unqualified, then they probably aren't qualified, and those are the ones that are more than likely going to cause a problem and more than likely going to be an injury, uh, cause an injury wreck.
0: You see, um, they look a lot not just at the facts of the accident, but at kind of the qualifications of those drivers. Is that become a big factor in determining the settlements? In addition, obviously the injuries and the severity of the accident, that type of thing. But where does where does all that come into play? Yeah,
2: that's going to come into play in the liability portion of the claim. So, when when they're looking at it, when the plaintiff and their counsel are trying to analyze this, they're going to try and see how can I take this to the next level. So, what they're trying to do is they're trying to paint the trucking company in, in the in the worst light they can possibly paint them. And so, the first place they're going to start is with what was the driver doing in the car at the time di- and the truck at the time. Second place is going to be what training did the driver have, uh, what company policies did they have what policies might he have been in violation of they'll look at dot regulations and say you know was he driving too much did he have enough rest you know they'll look at all those things to try and paint as dark a picture as they can of the trucking company
0: trying to take it a step further then not just the
2: so all these all the plaintiff attorneys
1: in these situations are are extremely well versed in the dot regulations and all that i assume
2: uh, the ones that are better at trucking litigation yeah. are going to be. There are some that will take the case, regardless of the situation, that aren't well-versed. Uh, they are wonderful to be up against because they are terrible uh, in a courtroom. So, But yeah. most of the ones will know the DLT regulations. They will know what's going on. Yeah, and that's going to be the first places they're going to start looking, which is why that needs to be the first places you're looking before you actually get to litigation.
0: So, what are the hiring practice things that you find um, m- companies maybe are the most lax? I don't know if most lax is, but the things that maybe are the most likely to be missed that the plaintiff attorneys kind of zone in on. Is there any one thing that seems like the easy fix that maybe doesn't get as much focus on our attention?
2: I think, yeah, I think if I had to point to one thing, it's probably going to be prior driving record. Uh, most companies are really good at looking at that. And most companies have policies in place that basically say, if you have X on your record, then you're not coming to work for us. And as long as you stick to those policies, I think you're going to be fine. I think, I think trying to, to find a qualified driver sometimes can be a tricky situation. And there are some people that, Hey, I've got to put somebody in that truck because that truck's got to move. And then you get in those situations where like, well, yeah, that guy did have an accident before, but man, it was a year ago. He's fine. And you put him in two months later, he has another accident. And now he's got two accidents in the course of basically a year. And the plaintiff's attorney is going to focus on that.
0: I think we've seen, I know Justin and I've seen when we work with our clients in trucking that over the past few years, it's been hard to find truck drivers, qualified truck drivers. And there's more loads and more trucks sitting empty than truck drivers to fill the seats. And so it has put trucking companies, I think, in a hard predicament of trying to fill those seats with qualified drivers and and holding tight to the policies. So is it, you know, I, I've had the question posed to me before, is it better to have a policy in place or if you don't follow it, is it best not to have the policy in place? So if your policy is I won't hire anybody with a year, do you understand what I'm kind of getting at? Is it is it better to have the policy and then they make an exception or would sometimes they be better off not having the policy to begin with?
2: Uh, it's a, it's a gamble. Uh, while you were saying that, I'm thinking of like, I'm trying to think of a poker hand that I can use as a good example and be like, well, if you have this, you think you're in good shape, but then when other factors come up, you might not be in as good shape as you were before. If your driver is going to be in an accident and you've hired him and he has not a, 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 an unclean record, so to speak, then in retrospect, obviously it would have been better not to have that policy because The plaintiff's attorney is going to be like, you have a policy not to hire people that have two accidents in two years. And here's a guy that's had three accidents in two years and you hired him anyways. So you knew how bad he was. You don't even hire people that are this bad and you hired this guy. So if you've got that policy and you're not going to follow it, don't have that policy. Makes sense. Totally makes sense. But for your own company, I mean, there's cost benefit analysis that I can't get into because that's well above my pay grade you know, you got to get those trucks moving. You've got product that you've got to get out there and that's, that's your lifeblood. So I can't speak to that. All I can speak to is what's going to happen if you put unqualified drivers or drivers that have that kind of record on the road. And if you do that and you've got a policy in place, it's, it's going to, it's, yeah, it's risky. Yeah. What, you know, with, with the shortage of drivers
1: and, and especially with just how trucking regulations have changed and we've talked about already, it's, it's hard to get drivers, but, so companies are are forced to take drivers that may not they they may have less than a spotless record what What are things that they should be doing with those drivers when when they hire them they know that yep you you've had some issues. I guess what I'm saying is how important is it for them to address those and and how should they go about doing it I, I'm assuming probably you know documentation of training and, and things to correct that
2: the more the better absolutely yeah i would one hundred percent agree with that and the uh, in, in most of the speeches or presentations that I give, the one thing I'll tell you is document in writing everything you can possibly document. You may not think it's important at the time, but it will be down the road. If you've got a driver, if, you, if you're trying to fill those spots and you, you've, got a, you've got a policy that basically says, we don't hire anybody that has an issue on their record. Well, you get to a point that that's impossible and you're like, I, I've got to have people out here and this guy's got one issue on his record and it looks like it might not have even been his fault. Well, yeah, then I'd say go ahead and hire him and then start doing exactly what you said, which is just put into play as many safety courses as you can. Put in your own training if you can. If you've got a system where you're like, hey, we're going to take you out on Saturday and you're going to do four hours of road testing with us, and then we're going to document that in your file. Uh, We're going to have you take some online courses that show that you know the ins and outs of everything that's safety, and then we're going to document that in your file. Six months from now, we're going to come back and visit this, and you're going to spend a day with a supervisor, and we're going to see how you're doing, and we're going to document that in your file. You know, taking each of those steps, when the plaintiff's attorney comes back and says, well, you hired somebody that had a problem, you can now come behind that and say, yeah, we did, and we fixed that problem. We got him the training he needed. We got him the courses he needed. We did the supervising we needed to do to make sure that everybody felt good about this guy being safe on the road, and we don't have a problem with him being one of our drivers. And that takes that that takes that argument for the plaintiff out of the equation.
0: That documentation is just key. I know it's key on the safety training, and and it's key when it comes time for the actual accidents. We get a questions a lot of times on you know electronic logs are becoming you know necessary now, but the dash cams and kind of the pros and cons of them. You know, I've I've heard arguments both ways. What's your feeling on the dash cams? Have you had any courtroom you know, experience with them that where it's come into play? Do you see it as a positive, negative, something people should invest in? What's kind of your general thoughts?
2: Uh, I like cameras overall. Um, I have found that the truth is your best defense in most cases. If you've got a good driver out there, then the camera is going to be exactly what you need it to be, which is your defense. It's going to show your driver doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing. And it's going to take care of that. If you've got a his if your, if your company has a history of bad drivers, maybe dash cams aren't your favorite thing. You know, if he's, <laughs> if he's going to be on, on, on the radio or like, you know, has a dog in the car and is petting the dog constantly or something like that, then sure, that's not going to be the greatest. Um, And they can be skewed. I had one that was a, a bus accident. It was caused by ice on the road and the person that got injured actually swerved out in front of the bus and then slammed on their brakes slid and then the bus had to slam on its brakes and slid and nudged them and the driver immediately afterwards was checking on the passengers and was apologizing to the passengers and so the plaintiff's attorney tried to spin that and say oh no no she's apologizing because she's in the wrong and i'm like no we had the dash cam from the entire day so we played the entire day of her uh, and what she did her driving was immaculate For the entire day, she went through everything. Full stops at stop signs, you know. She didn't go through yellow lights. She was perfect, and so it was clear that she was apologizing to them because she cared about people and not because she'd done something wrong. Right, and that played that played to the that played to the the court very well. Brought
1: up a good question for me, and and I know you probably get it all the time. But what what do you advise a driver to do, and when when there is an accident, what should they say or not say? You know, in, in that situation, um, should they help out if if the other party or is that admitting that, yeah, I was in the wrong?
2: <laughs> if it's if you're if you're asking me my opinion that I'm going to say I want that driver to be whoever that driver is, Yeah. Uh, if they're if they're a helping person, then I want them to go out and help that other person. Uh, If they're going to apologize to the people that they've got in the bus because they care about their their patrons, then I want them to continue to that person. I'm not going to sit there and coach them and say, when you get to this point, as soon as you have an accident, you don't say a word to anybody until your lawyer shows up. And even then say every other word. Yeah, I'm not going to I'm not going to coach them that well or that badly, I guess, (laughs) because I I don't want that to happen, because the more you try to do that, the more they're going to be thinking about that and the more that's just going to mess up their whole situation. So I, I don't if I can help it, I don't want to, I don't want to coach them for anything. I just want them to be them. Most people are good people in my opinion. So most people are going to do the right things. Most drivers that are in these situations are going to handle themselves well. And the drivers that are in those situations that aren't going to handle themselves well are pretty much, you are going to pay that claim anyways.
1: Yeah.
0: So I heard, um, something about dash cams going back to it that, uh, in addition to obviously being your best defense, if there's something in the wrong, a lot of times it can help determine the fair values of those cases and possibly then allow the company to possibly settle that case early or mitigate that exposure. Do you you find value there? Have you seen those too? I mean, obviously we all like to win the cases when we're in the right, but what about the other side of that?
2: No, absolutely. I I 100% agree with that When You've got a dash cam in there and it shows your guy Just doing some crazy stuff in there, which I've seen on dash cams. It's crazy. I have seen dash cams where they're not actually behind the wheel of the vehicle when the accident occurs because they were looking for something on the other side of the vehicle. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's not, that's not good. That's not, you know, the wheel is where you're supposed to
1: be at. So that's on those history for that driver.
2: Yeah. Yes, it will be. And those dash cams will be discoverable too. But Larissa, you're right. When you get to that point, you're on the front end of that because you've seen the dash cam and you've seen it immediately. So you now know where you stand with your driver and with fault and with all of that early on in the case. You can go, you as the company can go, okay, this is one that we were in the wrong and we need to take care of this. And most of the time, there there are very few people out there that start out immediately litigious. They don't necessarily want to jump to a lawyer first thing. And if you're taking care of them, they're probably not going to jump to a lawyer. So even though that can be very damaging, if you got down the road to a jury trial, uh, it can be one of your best friends on the front end because you're like, okay, I know this is us. Let's let's take care of her or him.
0: Because sometimes when you have a driver like that, the story you may have gotten without the dash cam may have been different about what went down. Yeah. Makes it easier to defend yourself.
2: You've got dash cams and door cams, kind of as a secondary to this. You also you are going to have workers' compensation policies out there as well. So if you've got dash cams and door cams, and this guy's saying this is what happened to me in this accident, you also have that as your defense to workers' compensation. If they're if they're like, I fell getting out of the truck, you've got you've got a door cam that's like uh, we've got two days of footage of you not falling at all. So how did you fall out of the truck? Or
0: have you seen many companies putting door cams on? I always from a work comp perspective, most of our big injuries come from more getting in, in and out of the truck. I say that's probably about the number one way truck drivers get hurt that we see.
2: I would yeah. I would agree with that. I haven't seen it as as a whole, but it would be the one thing if you were like, What safety thing or action would you take? The door cam would be number one, especially for workers' compensation because I would say five out of 10 of injuries that let's I'll take it higher. Seven out of 10 of injuries that don't involve an actual accident are getting in and out of the truck.
0: I would probably agree with that number yeah. or very close to it. Yeah. Very close to it. Especially if you take the auto accidents out of there.
2: Yeah. So your cameras are going to be expensive to put on each of those trucks, but they will pay for themselves in the one in the first one that you find out was lying to you.
0: Very true. Very true.
2: Because you're- that Sorry, happens. Co- no, it's you. You'll find this hard to believe, but sometimes employees will actually lie to you about their workers' compensation case. They will. Yeah, it's it's really weird. It happens on occasion, but yeah, I've I've wow. I've, I've seen it in twenty <laughs> in twenty years of practice. I have seen it once or twice.
0: Yeah, interesting, interesting. No, I always it's fraud is a interesting topic because I I think everybody likes talking about it. It makes for some interesting cases, and I know you've seen a lot. I've seen a lot over the years. I always have to remind our adjusters that most cases don't start off with fraud, but I think anybody who's been in the insurance business, claims business, has seen some pretty interesting ones over the years. Um, and some surprising ones, you know, I always joke with our adjusters that the first one that really pulls the wool over your eyes, you can always remember their name and tell all the facts on that case.
2: Yeah, that's true. I can give you two stories. First of all, uh, if the accident happens on Monday morning before nine o'clock, it did not happen at work. They'll say it did, but it didn't. It happened over the weekend, doing whatever they were doing over the weekend. They just had to limp their way into work and find a way to slide through for an hour or so and then claim the injury. So those are the ones that you want to investigate, the Monday morning ones.
0: We had a client not trucking. um, We had a company we work with, and I won't say where it was or who it was or anything like that, but they actually, to your point, came in Monday morning, clocking in for the shift. Slip and fall, broken arm. Seems pretty legit. And somebody happened to mention, you know, when she was walking in, she was holding her arm really funny. And sure enough, she had broken her arm over the weekend, came in, faked a slip and fall right after she clocked in. And you could see her holding her arm up funny as she clocked in, I thought, <laughs> wow, that's, that's hardcore. Like, I mean, you're going to wait to get your arm fixed. Yeah. <laughs> you
2: wonder if that was Saturday and she just stuck it out for the whole week. We that's... never
0: knew how long it had been broken. Obviously she yeah. never admitted to it. Once she was called out on it, she quit her employment and moved on and withdrew yeah. her claim. But so we never got the specifics, but I wondered how long she left on Friday, came back with a broken arm Monday.
2: Yeah. They, I had one that was, uh, been, over a decade now, they used to have something called the tough man competition. Um, is
0: That kind of like tough mutter or something.
2: No, this is more like a wrestling kind of thing. So oh. I think it was a, a little bit before UFC really started to take off, but these are just guys that are just going to box it out. I don't think they actually use gloves Uh, and they get in the ring and, and fight. And we had a guy show up to work and he was injured or said he was injured at work. Unfortunately for him, when you win the tough man competition, they put you on the news. Oh! And so a couple of days after that showed up in our office, <laughs> my secretary comes to me and goes, hey, does this guy look like this? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, I think I saw him on the news. So we pulled the news footage from the day before. And sure enough, he had won the tough man competition over the weekend. And uh, it was pretty clear where he got his injuries from. So he also withdrew his claim afterwards.
0: Yeah, it, it's... <laughs> We've had some interesting ones. I always love the surveillance and the fraud cases they're They're the small minority of the cases, but definitely some of the more interesting ones over time
1: how much How much does that help in in cases surveillance
2: for you If it's good surveillance then it help it can help a lot yeah uh, there' um I mean most of the companies around here I've had some good results with. There are some that I've used in the past, several of which are now defunct, probably for these reasons which I felt like they would just go out and check in at eight o'clock, check in at noon and check in at four o'clock. You get about 30 seconds of footage and they'd be gone. And so, you know, they weren't actually working on it, trying to get that person. If you've got a company that will actually try and get them. It is inevitable that let's say 80% of employees, even if they're truthful people, when you get them into a deposition, they're going to exaggerate their, their situation because they know this is where the money comes from. And so this is where it kicks in. And so that neck injury that didn't actually require surgery, they'll say, well, the doctor said I needed surgery and I can't move my neck at all. And so I can't do this. You know, I could make a, probably a top 10 list of, of things that you hear from these people. Um, (laughs) Number one, can't lift my grandbabies is their, is their usual go-to. Can't lift a jug of milk is always, always a favorite of theirs. So I've had some that have given me um, more tawdry details of what they can't do (laughs) because of their injuries. So uh, those are some
0: of those before too.
2: Those are always fun. Um, There was one that he injured his knee and there were things he used to do standing up that he doesn't do standing up anymore. So
0: good information. Yeah. Good information. I saw
2: they, they will. And then. When they do that, they will, they will inevitably go too far. And so if you can get good surveillance, they'll take it so far. When they take it to that gallon of milk level, then you go out and you get surveillance of them working to, going to a gas station or going to a Walmart and getting in and out of their car and doing other stuff like that. They've taken it too far to come back, and now you've got video of them doing things that they said they couldn't do before. So, yeah, it can be very handy.
1: I would imagine, especially in front of a jury, that's pretty powerful. Yeah. I saw where in your bio you would uh, actually had a case that went to the Supreme court if I'm not mistaken.
2: That is correct. Yes.
1: I'm interested in, in in your experience with that. I mean, that's, I'm assuming that's pretty much top level for, for an attorney.
0: Is it as exciting as people would think it would be or different experience? Uh,
2: It was, it was nerve wracking. Um, The good thing that I had in that situation is workers comp under the old law, used to have a special panel that you would argue in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, What they would do is for workers' comp, they would put, uh, usually it's the chief judge, one other judge from the Supreme Court, and then just a rotating judge they would bring in there. And that panel of three would hear all of your appeals on workers' comp. So if you lost and you shouldn't have lost at a lower level, you would take it to them. So I had been in the Supreme Court room several times before, before that argument. It is a different experience to walk into that room when it is the full panel of the Supreme Court to argue a case. So it was, uh, it was a little intimidating, but I had I had really good facts, so I felt good going into it. You'll get cases, unfortunately, in rural jurisdictions where the judge might feel more inclined to side with the employee than he will with the business, and if the facts are kind of on the fence, they can they may go that way. So in this case, uh, I had a guy who was working for a company and he was a lineman and he had gotten electrocuted and he hadn't been wearing his safety gloves at the time. And so with the way the law was structured under workers' comp at that time, there was a brief period of time in the 2000s where you couldn't settle on a doubtful undisputed basis for more than 50 times the comp
0: rate. Right. It's very low.
2: So those cases would end up if you wanted to settle Dufflin and you had to do it at like a five thousand, six thousand dollar level.
0: It's tough back yeah. then,
1: very tough. Can you can you explain what you just said in, in layman's terms? I didn't.
0: It, well, the the law as he's talking about it is no longer that way. But back, I mean, and I'll let Dwayne explain. But back in the day, they put a cap. You couldn't you couldn't basically settle and say, look, we're not claiming any liability unless you settle for less than $6,000. So the problem was if you had somebody who was really badly hurt, you know, your exposure may be huge, so you may it may be worth it even if you think you're right to settle for 100,000 or 50,000. And same for the other side, they may have wanted that money too, but the cap was it was like 6,000, 5,600 mm-hmm. or some dollar amount like that. And so it, it made it difficult to settle cases. A lot of them went more to trial back then yeah. than they do now.
2: Because there wasn't that window. Uh, A doubtful and disputed case is a situation where you've got good arguments on your side that it wasn't work related. They've got good arguments on their side that it was work related. Both of you think you're going to win at trial. And so what you end up doing is you're like, you find a spot in the middle and you call it doubtful and disputed. And in that situation, you're basically saying, We're not admitting liability, and you're not saying we're not liable. We're both just saying, this is what we'll do to, as they call it, buy peace, which is just to settle the case and get out of it.
0: Agree to disagree. Yeah,
2: makes sense. In the yeah. in, in the case that uh, that I had, the the employee after exactly one year of treatment went back to work for the same company full time doing the same thing. So, at that time, he was he he would have been limited to one time his rating, and that came out to one hundred thousand dollars. So. Dauphin Disputed had been open. I have no doubt that both we would have settled at 50 and been fine with it. But since Dauphin Disputed only gave us to about $6,000, the employee's not going to take $6,000 when he might get a hundred. And we're not going to give a hundred when we might get zero. So we ended up having to take it to court. Now, the good thing I have was that the facts were really strong for the employer. The employer uh, had done everything right. Uh, The employer had, Uh, a person come in, a, a safety person nationally come in once a year and talk about safety and using protective equipment. They had a local outside person come in every six months and talk about safety and using protective equipment. They had a regional manager come in every three months and talk about safety and protective equipment. Regular manager would talk to them every month about it. Their uh, job foreman, I guess is what they call them would talk to them about it every week and every day before they started the job, they would have a 15 minute meeting at the truck to talk about personal equipment. And they would sign a document that morning saying they had gone over everything and understood the regulations. And this guy was supposed to use gloves. The rule was bucket to bucket. If you're in the bucket, you're anywhere near them. You need the gloves on. He went up there didn't think he was near a live wire, took the gloves off to put something on. As is always the case, the wire comes out of the bucket, drops to the one below, which is live, and he gets shocked badly. So with those facts, we felt pretty good that we had a violation of a safety rule. And so that's what we went to court on. Uh, At the time, it was a 4 prong test. It was actual notice of the safety rule. The employee had to know and understand the dangers in violating the rule had to be strict and bona fide enforcement of the rule, and then the last one was an element of perverseness. Nobody knew what that meant. Uh, When I was questioned by the Supreme Court judge, he was like, what do you think an element of perverseness means? And I was like, your honor, respectfully, I can't tell you what I originally thought when I saw the word perverse, because I think we all know what we think when we see the word perverse. And that's got nothing to do with safety or injuries. So I was like, I'm not sure where that goes. I was like, but the only cases that you're going to, that, that, defenses are going to win in those situations are cases that are so blatantly out there that it becomes perverse. Like these people that are intentionally taking their own lives, that might be considered perverse. That's not fair to the, to the uh, employer and the insurance companies that are putting these policies in place to put an umbrella over their, over their clients. And so they removed that element and changed it to no reasonable excuse for violating the rule. Like if he had gone up there with gloves that didn't have fingers on them, that's not going to protect him from getting a shock. Right. So there's no sense using them. Yeah. So what
1: that you, is now the new law. For what you just talked about really illustrates what I always cover with our any client of ours on the importance of documentation, not only from an OSHA aspect, but a lot of times people only think about that side of things. You know, with when somebody does get hurt, you know, and, and how a how crucial it is to be able to go back and show this is the training we've done on this. This is what we do. This is also what we do. I mean, it, that's, that's exactly what we advise everyone to do and and people forget how important that becomes.
0: Well, and the documentation of it is just key. I know we had a client years ago, a client that was incredibly good at documentation of their safety procedures and training and that type of thing in addition to their injury rates being lower because of everything they did, it also made it when somebody did violate it, you you had some type of chance. And I think a lot of people think just because they have policies and procedures in place that that protects them, but it sounds like it really does. Taking it a step further is what helps you.
2: Absolutely. And the other thing that you want to add to that is you're going to have that employee that you love that's going to violate your safety rule. And you're going to sit there and you're going to be like, Ah, come on. It's John. He's a good guy. I'm going to let it go this one time. And when you let it go that one time, you no longer have strict continuous enforcement of that rule. It's gone because that's all it takes to break that continuous enforcement. Once you let somebody slide, you've got you, 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 your enforcement is gone. So and the three
0: prongs for you. are worth are four prongs. Yeah. Is it four? Uh-huh. What were they again?
2: It's actual notice of the safety rule. So you've got to put it out there, and that's your that's your first thing that you're going to have signed off on.
0: All procedures. Everybody thinks they yep. have. Yep.
2: The
1: communication piece of it, so to speak, to everybody.
2: Exactly right. Uh, I would recommend not making that. Well, I recommend making it part of your introductory pamphlet or packet. But don't leave it at that. Don't just like hire them in 2010, have them sign off on the introductory packet, and then go away. And then when an accident happens in 2019 go digging back there and say he signed it in 2010 it's been nine years so keep the actual notice going do it yearly do it more than yearly the more is better Uh, they have to understand the danger involved in violating the rule what that basically means is they have to have actual notice of the rule they have to understand why that rule is in place if you've got to wear gloves in a bucket because you're a lineman they need to understand that there's you know tens of thousands of volts that are going through those wires and that's why they're they need to have those gloves on Uh, Bonafide, strict, continuous enforcement of the rule. That means all the time. That means you can't take shortcuts. If you're supposed to um, reprimand them for the first violation, write them up for the second and terminate for the third. Follow your procedures each time for each one. Don't say, well, I like John, so I'm going to let him slide. not going to write this up as his first one. Invariably, those will come back because the next guy or girl will get injured they'll know about John, you'll write them up, and then you'll try and enforce the safety rule and keep them, keep them from benefits, and they'll say, but you didn't write John up, and your rule is gone.
1: So in a, in a trial situation, a company could expect the plaintiff to, to ask for documentation on what they've done as far as enforcing those, those rules. Absolutely. They, they should expect that, probably. A- absolutely, yeah. they should expect that.
2: They are mm-hmm. going to ask who else has violated this rule, they're going to ask how many times have you had to enforce it, and they're going to ask, how many times have you not enforced it? They're going to ask, was there ever that one time that you didn't enforce it? And the attorney on the other side is going to, at that point, try to be smiling and be your friend so you feel comfortable and be like, come on, what about that one time? That one time you did it? Because he knows if he gets the one time, your rule has gone. Chink in the armor. Mm-hmm. It's gone.
0: So there's been some interesting, really large dollar cases um, out there when we talk about auto liability with cell phones. And I know a lot of states are going towards, you know, hands-free. Tennessee recently passed where we're going hands-free, which uh, we may have been one of the last states to do it. I don't know where we fall in that. But companies, that's that's, you know, it's one of the main ways they communicate with their drivers a lot of times. But yet, you know, from a safety perspective, can you comment on some of, it's been in the news tons. Um, you know, there was a case down in Texas, I believe with Coca-Cola. Can you comment a little on those cases? What you see, what you see as things that companies can do or. Sure.
2: Uh, uh, a couple of those cases, uh, both, uh, I think this probably says something about Texas, but both of the bigger ones I found were in Texas, Texas.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> that involved, It involved hands-free or cell phones. The bigger ones were down in Texas. Uh, Coca-Cola got hit for 22 million. From what I could tell, they indicated in their post-trial speeches that they were going to appeal, but I could not find an appeal. So I'm guessing they probably ended up working that out based on the pleadings that seemed the way they were going in the first place, because they they had said before that the only issue they couldn't agree on was damages. So, and that makes sense because in the case that in the case at question, the person that was driving for Coca-Cola. Uh, similar to my case, except it was a green light turned left in front of oncoming traffic. Uh, She thought she had an arrow, which played against her in the court of public opinion, because then the plaintiff's attorney spun that as saying, you were so distracted. You didn't even know you didn't have the arrow. (laughs) And so that didn't play well for them, but she, she did not have the arrow. She had turned left in front of them. Uh, They got hit for a $22 million judgment. She was actually on a hands-free set. So, While she was on the hands-free set, they still said she was considered distractive driving. Now, I think that is an aberration. I don't think that's going to be the case. I would certainly not tell you, I don't think you have to have a policy that completely eliminates phones. That is a way that you communicate. And if you're hands-free and following the law, I'd say 99 times out of 100, you're not going to get hit for $22 I didn't see in the case law where there was countervailing proof. Uh, the, the plaintiff's lawyer brought in the fact that you're just as distracted for using a hands-free phone as a hands-held one. And just briefly in preparation for the podcast, I was like, let me see what I can find. Within two minutes, I had pulled up an article from February of 2019 that indicated that that was not the case. It was out of Virginia Tech. It said that talking on the phone is primarily a cognitive function and it is a secondary function to driving and that that primarily cognitive secondary task of talking on a hands-free device does not appear to have any detrimental effects on driving. So, they actually did several cases with control groups and groups using hands-free, and in several of those trials, the hands-free came out better than the control
0: group. Interesting. So, as a general policy, is it, I think, you know, even dealing with the law at this point, having a hands-free policy or having a no cell phone policy in general, is wise, or you seeing that as a big? I know we've seen over the years they're asking for cell phone records as soon as uh, it seems like an accident happens. Are you y'all recommending people have hands free or no cell phone policies in their trucks? Or
2: I'd say yes. I mean, if you can get away with it, and no cell phone policy would be ideal. But the problem you're going to run into there is we are all attached at the eyeballs to our cell phone, so there's no way you're going to get a, an over the road truck driver to be able to put that aside completely for however long
0: they're in the vehicle. That policy might get you in trouble. Right, right.
2: And that's where you're going to run into that strict and bona fide enforcement again. You'd have to enforce it against everybody and they're all going to be doing it. So uh, a hands-free is certainly a better way to go. Telling them that you can still use your phone, but you use it hands-free in the vehicle and having a policy that they understand and they sign off on is going to be significantly better for you. Interesting. You know, there's a lot of
1: people out there that have never been to court. You know they they've never dealt with it at all. They don't know what to expect. What what can a company and I'm talking like nuts and bolts of it. What can they expect when when it gets to that point? They've got an employee hurt and it's going to court.
0: You mean it's not like law and order? <laughs> I think that's what most people think it's yeah, like. Right. Maybe it is like law and order.
2: The first thing you want to remember is that your attorney may actually be brilliant, even if he forgets his jacket. So. <laughs> Keep in, keep in mind that sometimes that's just a ploy to work over the jury and not actually anything else to do. Um, yeah, the for me, it's not an issue because I'm in right. court all the time. So I see it and I, it's second nature. But for people that don't go to court all the time, it can be very nerve wracking about what they, should, what they should know and what they should expect. And typically, it, I'll go back to two things more often than not, one of which we've gone over almost too much during this podcast, which is. Have it in writing already. You've already got your entire defense if you've already prepared your entire defense before you got to that point. So if you have all the documentation that shows, hey, this is our policy. This is when he signed off on it. This is when he was trained on it. This is when he saw a video on it. This is where he took a test on it. This is where we retested him on it because he passed it so well. We wanted to make sure he wasn't cheating or, you know, we love testing twice. And we've got all these documents. Then when you show up in court, all you've got to do is recite what you already know. Well, yeah, on February 10th, he did this. On February 20th, he did this. And that's why our defense is that he you know, violated the policy.
0: So a lot of times when people get served with a lawsuit, it brings up a lot of emotions. I know you're an attorney, so you get them all the time. Like you said, you cheer. Yeah, that's happy, happy emotions for lawyers. Yeah. emotions yeah. for us. I know, obviously, we represent a lot of employers, so it's not as earth-shattering to us when we see that somebody has been sued. But for A lot of employers, uh, you know, that's an employee, maybe somebody they used to trust or somebody they used to like, maybe it's somebody they're mad at, maybe it's somewhere in between. But I hear the term a lot, I'd rather pay the attorney a million dollars than give this guy one penny. And and not everybody feels that way. There's definitely, like you said at the beginning, there's lots of cases they know the value of, they settle them, and they move on. But when making that determination as to is this one to go to trial, is this not, What's kind of some general, and I'm sure every case is different, but the general things you look for to make those those decisions?
2: I like to start by telling my clients that every case has to go to trial um, with no exceptions. <laughs> uh, and usually, and preferably through me, which is the only way to get to trial and, and get a... No, <laughs> no I'm kidding. Um, you have to do a cost-benefit analysis in those situations. If you've got a high-dollar case um, that has facts that you feel are supportive of your position, then I think you should be more likely to want to go to trial to set an example and say, hey, if we if you roll over on the high-dollar cases, you're setting a bad example for other drivers and other situations about what could happen in these high-dollar cases. If you have a lower-dollar case that is going to possibly cost you equal to or more to take it to trial in legal fees, in experts, in witnesses, in depositions then in that case, I will give you a breakdown and say, hey, this is the situation. Um, You are going to pay me this to get it to trial. You're more than welcome to take the position of saying, the heck with them. I'm paying the attorney rather than paying them, and I'm fine if you take that position. But that's where it's going to come out. And a lot of times, and unfortunately, a lot of plaintiff's attorneys know this as well, for very low dollar amounts, something will get put on the table more than likely than take it to trial. So the lower
0: the dollar amount ones are usually the ones people roll over. On more,
2: yeah, it's it's unfortunate because the case won't be worth even that low dollar amount. But in that situation, if you can, you know, throw one two thousand dollars and it's going to take you five to get to court, then obviously it makes sense to save yourself that little bit extra. And but there are situations where those low dollar ones come with a fact pattern that you're like, if I pay this in this situation. I'm setting a very dangerous precedent for my business that would let them, a lot of people are going to come in because that one person, I've, I've had cases specifically where they're like, we can't just pay this guy because this guy is the biggest gossip we've got in the company. So if we just pay him, even though we know his injury is nothing, he's going to tell everybody that they can get something for nothing. And then we're going to be facing multitudes of these claims.
0: That's interesting, I have two clients I can think of one um that probably about ten years ago decided to take two cases to trial for that particular reason neither case was worth what they spent in attorney fees and they but they were very concerned about the precedent they were going to set and they've said it was the best money they ever spent those those two cases cost benefit analysis it didn't work out when they looked at the overall picture of what their long term comp Picture was it worked out to their advantage, but then there was another case, and I know um you you were involved in it and your firm was involved with it where we knew we would probably lose at the trial level, but would then take it on to the appeal appellate courts, and we were able to get a good verdict for that one, and I actually know on that case more money was probably spent on that case than it was worth in legal fees, but we were actually able to settle four or five other cases for other clients um, based on, on the judgment. So I guess you definitely have to take that into consideration too.
2: You do. I I have never heard the counter of that argument. I've never heard somebody that had a case that had good facts for the defense. I've never heard an employer say taking that to court was a bad decision. So even if they didn't get the result they wanted, most of the time, just by making them go through the process and saying, we're not just going to roll over. They've, they've limited cases in the future.
1: I've, One last question about litigation again, because that's what I'm fascinated about. And it deals with witnesses and how how crucial or how important or how, I guess, how beneficial can a good expert witness be? For example, we'll say you got a, I don't know, you have an employee that gets hurt on a forklift and you got a a forklift expert come in and look at it. But it seems to me like the plaintiff can do the same thing. So it's like, how do they, how, how does that work? And who believes, which, how do you know which one to believe type thing?
2: yeah uh that that can be one of the trickier parts of of a trial is figuring out whether your expert is better than their expert and I honestly think in the in the coca cola case, I think that's what happened uh, They brought in an expert for cell phones and he just blasted them with facts and statistics. Part of one of the articles I read after that was like the jury was just dumbfounded they did they had no idea that hands free could be as distracting as that. I think one of his stats was that he had a study out of Utah that said that hands-free driving made you as impaired as if you had a 0.8, blood alcohol level. I'm like, I'm like that, that has to be easy (laughs) to refuse. How is there, how is there not the opposite? Yeah. How is there not the opposite? How is there not an expert on the other side? But the only expert that got mentioned was theirs in everything I read. I never read anything about the defense expert. So, I don't know if uh, he, he may have been fantastic and they just, it just skewed that way just a little bit. I don't know. I can't speak to that. I can speak to the fact that if you've got a good expert, yeah. it can make a huge difference. Uh, if you've got, uh, especially, uh, uh, a good investigator or a good expert at the beginning of a, of a truck accident, if they go out there and they investigate the scene first thing, they've got fresh information. I mean, you're still going to have to keep the truck because the other, the other side does have to look at it, but they've got it from the site. They've got, they've got brake patterns, They've got whether the brakes were working. They've got uh, all the readings they can get out of the truck at the time. They've got fresh information from the driver at that time. So you've got you can if you've got an investigator that's worth worth their salt, they can be better than the highest paid expert. But a good expert can carry the day. So it's definitely valuable
1: for I know a lot of trucking companies. You know they they work with those third party investigators when they do have an accident. The ones that they can call out pretty much all times of the night and day. I think they're called adjusters, but I'm not sure. But anyway, it's, uh,
2: (laughs) yeah. yeah. And they'll know things that, that will, will astound you. Like as an attorney, I know what a car bumper can do because I've been in enough cases, but most people don't realize that you don't actually feel the impact of a hit from behind that's under 15 miles an hour because the bumper is designed to absorb that impact. So you get an expert or a safety person on the stand that can say, actually, cars are designed to do this, this, and this. After that, the seat will break. After that, the airbag will deploy. All these things are electronic and they happen instantly. And, you know, so if you've got a a, a nudge in a parking lot because somebody was backing out and somebody was coming through during Christmas rush, you know, they're going to say on their side, oh, I've got whiplash and it's horrible. And your expert can come and say, you never felt that.
0: That could make a huge difference because I think you know you've got a car accident. People automatically are going to assume they were hurt unless you've got somebody giving some type of proof, you know, and it sounds very authoritative, <laughs> backed by lots of science. So,
1: well, uh, we've kept you on for a while, but I've I've got one very important final question that I've been thinking about all the time. And oh goodness! It's uh, uh, first off, have you seen the firm or what? Read the book.
2: Both, yes.
1: How, is that an accurate depiction of a, of a big-time criminal defense firm, the life
2: in one? Well, see, I didn't do criminal defense work, so I assume yes. I assume you're always running through. Was the firm the one set in Memphis? I can't remember. I think a
0: lot of them. A lot of the John Grisham ones, you're running at all times, yeah. right?
1: Yeah. I think you're right, though. I think it was in Memphis, that
2: one. But. Yeah, I think that was the Tom Cruise one where he's running to Mud Island and has to like just
1: curious, is it, is it really that rough for your lower— your, what do you call attorneys when they first— in those firms are they associates associates yeah is it really is life that's really what, that that's
2: not what the partners call them but that's what yeah there's
1: technical term is associates life really that that rough form when they're at that low level in the firm
2: <laughs> no it's it's not at all so yeah
0: it was kind of an evil laugh i'm not sure <laughs> yeah. if that was uh no like we haze them on the side and nobody it, knows about that, it. No, that, that was
2: the laugh like i suspect people think that they get hazed on the side but no uh,
0: although they get hazed a little <laughs> Do the paralegals
2: get treated better than than them? Yes, okay. yes. But the paralegals at the time are and, and probably consistently are more important than them. So more valuable as well, probably. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I, I can speak for myself. I'd be dead in the water without mine. So yeah, yeah. they 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 know as much as the attorneys, pretty much ninety nine percent of the time on the plaintiff's side. For the ones that you see on TV, paralegal is pretty much all you're going to deal with. Wow, well, they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna take the case. They're going to go through the fact pattern. They're going to talk to you about what it's worth. They're going to bring it to the attorney. The attorney's going to sign off on taking the case. They're going to get back with you. Uh, They're going to write letters for the attorney to try and settle the case before they get into litigation. If it gets into litigation, the attorney will then get involved. But more often than not, they can get those settled and turned over pretty quickly, and it never actually sees the attorney's hands. I've had
0: more than one injured worker over the years talk about their attorney, and it. Was actually the paralegal that yeah. was their attorney. It wasn't the actual attorney. I've wanted to bust their bubble and say, you know, that person's not actually <laughs> an attorney, right? So,
2: <laughs> yeah. I, generally, kept my mouth shut. Though. <laughs> you'll see settlements. I'll go to I'll go to court with settlements with an a, opposing counsel on the other side, and it will be the first time he's met his client. So,
0: and yeah. you can tell, yeah,
2: you can tell <laughs> he doesn't know who he's looking for. The client doesn't know who he's looking for. You know, so. <laughs> Interesting. All right. But no, there there is no hazing, just to be clear, there is no hazing, no, no in, hazing
0: Of course either. not. At all. Yeah, no. Never. Never.
2: I did have um let's see. I did have well, I don't know if that's I had a story um where um, one of my early firms sent me to a deposition of a doctor and the they it was earlier than my jury trial. So it was one of my first expert depositions. And I went to take the deposition of the doctor. What they left out of the situation was that the doctor was going through gender reassignment at the time. So when I got there, the doctor that I was expecting was not the doctor that was taking, was giving the deposition. So uh, I think they did that. That might, I guess technically that might've been hazing a little bit just to see if I could handle it on the fly. I mean, yeah. if how would react, would yeah. react. Yeah. I was yeah. like, all right, whatever. So as long as I just, I, I felt like I had to at the beginning of the deposition make sure I established that that was the same doctor that treated them the whole time. But other than that, I was like, well, let well, roll with it." So you passed the test, probably. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah that was. His, they decided he wasn't worth hazing anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this, one,
2: this one's got a brain. If that yeah. one doesn't throw. You, yeah, they're like, I guess that's not going to throw him for a loop. He's so
0: like, great. We don't <laughs> have anything else. Yeah. So. All right. Well, I really appreciate Dwayne Willis with Morgan and Akins joining us today. Um, Morgan and Akins has attorneys in the southeast in Tennessee, Mississippi, Georgia, Kentucky, Alabama, and up in the northeast in Pennsylvania, New York, and New Jersey. Dwayne, thanks again for joining us. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: It's my pleasure. Have a good one. You too.
0: Thanks for listening today to The Safety Exchange with myself, Larissa Featherstone, and my co-host, Justin Gray. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe. And if you would like to be featured on a future podcast or have an idea for a topic, please leave us a comment on our social media. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at JA underscore safety, or on Facebook and LinkedIn at Johnston and Associates. Thanks so much for joining us.